All right, if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, we've been in the book of Psalms, which is just about dead center in your Bible. Proverbs is one book to the right. And uh, books of the Bible have been helpfully divided up into chapters and verses. So we're going to be looking at chapter 23 of Proverbs, verses 12 to 26. So the last 10 Sundays, we have uh, been in the Psalms. And again, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there are different categories, different kinds of, let's say, literature of the books of the Bible. So if you read Genesis, it, it, it's a historical book. It is telling you the truth of the history of creation and the beginnings of God's people and so on. And then if you read uh, Psalms, you'll notice that it isn't like Genesis. It's different. Psalms are poetry. They're songs. Uh, They're meant to be sung. And the category of literature that Psalms is in is called the wisdom literature. And what wisdom literature does is it seeks to look at life experience and then bring it to God's people in a way that really grabs hold of them. And of course, songs do that, don't they? Songs are very memorable. You could probably sing a tune from when you were six, even if you haven't heard it for two decades. It sticks. That's that's a a part of wisdom literature. It's supposed to be sticky to help you encounter this world as it is and yet encounter it distinctly Christian. And so by, let's say, David's experience in the Psalms, he gives you a song from his experience as a Christian that's meant to be able to be sung by you, staying with you, so that when you encounter similar things, it's stuck in there, that song. Proverbs is also wisdom literature. It's meant to be sticky. It's meant to stay with you. Um, so let me, let me say something. You, you complete this sentence. The early bird, is it catches or gets? I heard both. Uh, no matter. Why does that stick? There's a short, simple saying that looks at the world And helps you to understand that if you'll get up and get going, you'll probably be more successful than somebody who stays in bed till 10 a.m. And so the book of Proverbs is like that. It's giving you short, pithy, punchy statements that, like the Psalms through song, the Proverbs through these short, proverbial sayings stick with you that describe real-life experience that you can take with you and be very helpful to you. So I thought since we were in the Psalms the last 10 weeks, we would add to this wisdom literature, our summer diet, a side helping, if you will, of two or three Proverbs. So we're going to do that. Today, I want to focus on what I think is one of the main central realities in Proverbs. And then next Sunday, I was going to do marriage, but I think friendship. I'm going to do the topic of friendship and said, Proverbs isn't really given to, let's say, preaching right through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Seems better to do it themes. 
So this Sunday I want to look at what I think is the main theme in Proverbs. Next Sunday, another massive theme is what does Proverbs teach us about friendship uh, and the dangers and the goodness of it. Let me read. I'm going to read Proverbs 13, 12 to 26. We're going to be mainly just looking at verse 26, but I want to give you some context. In fact, I'll read verse 27 too. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart. Your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. Let's pray. Father, your hands have fashioned us. You've made us. And so teach us the wisdom of submitting to you in your understanding. So give us understanding that we may learn your commandments. We may learn from these Proverbs. May we fear you and be glad. So teach us to wait for your word. Father, your judgments are righteous. And sometimes in your faithfulness, you afflict us. Would you then also comfort us in your loving kindness according to your word? Father, teach us to fear you that we may know the truth of your word and not be ashamed. Amen. All right, so Proverbs again is a sort of poetry where the wisest human being who ever lived, along with a few of his friends, instruct you on how to live in this world in a way that pleases God admits the reality of life around you and can lead to a good life. That's what Proverbs wants. It's a father who's lived this world, who's very wise, who has sinned and come back, showing you in almost every area of life what you're going to encounter and how a wise, godly man or woman should respond. But he does it in a way that itself is very, very helpful. In Proverbs, they stay with you. The way that Solomon does this is itself really something, these Proverbs. And so, uh, let's get at Proverbs this way. Have you ever known someone that you and others say, he's a good man or she's a good woman? I don't know if women say that about other women. Do you guys say that about women? What do you say? I think women are so competitive that they probably won't do that for each other. <laughs> I think there's something to that. How, what do women say to about each other? 
Okay, she's got it all together. Yeah, okay. Now, uh, somebody who is a good man or a woman who's got it all together is probably living in congruity with Proverbs. A good man is somebody who lives in this world as it is and is responding likely in a wise, godly way. And so you look at him and say, he's a good man. Four. Or a woman who's got it all together, similarly. That's what Proverbs is for. It's to help you not, not be a goodie, but to be a good man. To be a good woman. Now the mistake, of course, would be to like try to live this perfectly. That, that's what Proverbs isn't for. That, that's the very nature of the book. You have to live not woodenly, but wisely. You have to learn how to respond in fluid situations that are often very difficult with increasing wisdom. So Solomon, again, he, think of Proverbs in his writings as life hacks. Again, how, how to encounter this world in wise ways and then does it with catchy sayings. All right, so righty, tidy, lefty. All right, that's Proverbs. Additionally, in order to grab you, Solomon writes as a father to his son. And so I think in reading this book, it is packed with emotion. It, I can't read this book without feeling the fatherly care and intimacy for his child. And nowhere is that clearer than in verse 26. My son, give me your heart. So this is a father's letter to his son. Now, this isn't excluding women. My mom, on my wedding, I don't know if it was night, you know, like before the night, she had given me a little of wisdom with her own little notes in it. That's what this book is. This is a, a young man or young woman in the world about to figure it all out and a father writing, a mother writing, here's what you're going to encounter. Here's godly wisdom, son. Daughter. So fathers and mothers, by their very nature, give themselves for their children. That's what we do. We pour ourselves out. We're like lights dimming, giving it to our children who are getting brighter so that they can carry on as we go out. That's what fathers and mothers are for. In, in a similar way, this is God the Father and God the Son. We observe the glory of the Father in the Son. We know the Father by the Son. And 
God the Son loved God the Father, submitted himself in heart to his Father to do his Father's will that he might bring glory and honor to his Father. And that's what this book is. If you want a glimpse into the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, here it is. The Son of God willingly, gladly gave his heart to his Father and wanted his Father to get glory and enjoyment out of his Son's life as his Son lived in the world. That's what this book is. So I think this book is like just, I, I was struggling with this sermon because I didn't know how to communicate that energy, that feeling of it. Now, the, the father writes like this because he's very aware that the son or the daughter is going to encounter two voices, if you will, in the world. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, the first son and daughter of God the Father among humanity. Was God the Father's the only voice they encountered? No. There was a second voice. Another faux father, but one who was calling for their hearts as well. And so this is the warfare that we enter into as children, of children of God, of children of our parents. In Galatians 5, we have the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. In Romans 7, our flesh, our carnal desires fight against this newborn life and we struggle with it. And the father in Proverbs is trying to prepare his child for this warfare. But he doesn't just like give him data. He calls on his heart. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son. Do you not hear the call, the love, the intimacy, the desire? My son, listen to me. My son, receive my words. My son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Hear, O oh son, my, your father's instruction. Be attentive. My son, my son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear. My son, my son. And in our text, look, look at it. verse 26, what follows in verse 27. My son, give me your heart. My son, give me your heart. The voice of the father, another voice, 27. That of the allurements of the world personified as a prostitute. And knowing that within a child, within each of us, dwells a heart, a soul, the core of our being that isn't neutral. It's inclined in the sin of our first father, Adam, towards the harlot. This is what gets the juices flowing. The enticements of the flesh. We're not inclined towards 
godliness, towards the love of purity, towards eternal glory of the Father. We're not in the heart, inclined in that direction, but in the other. This is why this is so important. My son. So that's what Proverbs is. It's the love of a father from the heart, sincerely wanting his son's best in this world of woe, knowing that his son's heart will be inclined towards things that will destroy him and that he'll encounter them, trying to give his son his heart, his love in very helpful proverbial ways so that his son won't be like surprised. His son will know himself, know the world, know the fear of God, see his father, love his father, give his father his heart, and so walk wisely. That's the heart of this book. It's not just a disconnected proverb. It's fatherly, motherly affection, giving life for a beloved son or daughter, having encountered this world, knowing sin and folly and loving it and seeing the ruin of it. Now looking at his coming-of-age child, pleading. Do you feel that? That heavy? Isn't that awesome? Love of a father, love of a mother. Isn't it delightful? That's this book. And so this book, the, the center of it is really getting at the two core realities of our existence. Love of a father and our heart. That's something. So that's at the core of this book. The two deepest realities, the most intimate, wondrous realities, the love of father and the core of who you are, your affections, your loves, your so your heart. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3, New Testament. You get past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3. There is this prayer, the beginning of the prayer. <clears throat> he names one of the deepest realities in the world. The fatherhood of God. In 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's in prayer here before the Father. And that's something. The fatherhood of God towards us. How does God relate to you? What's the main way that God has disclosed himself to you. What name are you baptized into? What name are you given? God the Father. This is what defines you more than anything else. And what is he praying for? I bow my knees before this Father, from whom all fatherhood... Now, it says every family. That isn't what it really says. It says... Or fathered, for whom all fathers in heaven and earth is named, all fatherhood. The fundamental reality in our world is fatherhood. 
Why? Because God is Father. That's how He's revealed Himself. He sent His Son, and all who are in Christ are sons of a Father. It is no wonder that His fatherhood is degrading in our culture. Our culture is degrading. When you mess with fundamental things, you reap the whirlwind. So, all fatherhood in heaven and earth, fundamental reality, gets its name from God the Father. And he's praying that according to the riches of the glory of the Father, we may be strengthened in our inner being to know this love, verse 17, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints of breath, length, height, depth, to know the love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fundamental reality woven into our bones is hunger, want, desire for a father's love and authority. This is not disregarding mothers, by the way. And so, I don't know if it does this for you, this tugs, pulls at my heart. And now as a father in a way that it never did before. The care, provision, protection, affection, instruction, discipline of a father for a son or daughter. Now before you know God the Father, you know your father. And other men who are fatherly towards you. And so there's no surprise that the first command given to you in your life is what? Honor your father. Age-specific command. That's the first command given to you as a human being. We're made to relate to our father and mother. We're made to learn God the Father, what he's like, how we're to relate to him by our father and our mother. Now, let me take you to a few other places in the Bible to maybe help us feel the emotion of this plea to a son, to a daughter, to give his or her heart to the father. Turn back a few books to 1 Samuel 20. This is David, Solomon's father, and his intimacy with a friend, Jonathan. Now, this isn't father-son relationship, but I want you to feel the intimacy here. In 1 Samuel 20, 41 to 42. So this is a situation, Jonathan is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, He's here being very fatherly for his intimate friend. Saul is plotting harm against David. And Saul and Jonathan are knit together. And, and, and you remember the whole thing with the bow and shooting the arrows. And Jonathan's trying to warn David that his father's trying to kill him and send him off. Let's read 41 and 42 of 1 Samuel 20. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed. 
one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, your offspring, my offspring and your offspring forever. And they rose and departed Jonathan's city. But look at that. They kissed one another. They're embracing. They're weeping. That kind of heart given to each other is what we're hearing in this book. My son, give me your heart. It's that kind of entering into the vulnerability, as Pastor Jeff said, of that kind of, you have me. And what you do is going to intimately, completely impact me. Again, turn to the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 20. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Acts 20, 36 to 38. So this is the Apostle Paul heading towards Jerusalem after visiting some of the churches that he had started that he loves as a father. He fathered them. He's a father of them. He's on his way, likely, to his arrest and death. He knows it. So this is like a last visit. He calls the elders, the men that he had fathered spiritually in the church at Ephesus to him one last time. He's instructing them. This sermon here with the Ephesian men is just like Proverbs. A father who's going out. A father whose life is dimming. Getting his sons ready to live in this world of misery and joy with godly wisdom. So he's telling them what to do. And at the very end of it, verse 36, when he had said these things, that is when he had finished his Proverbs, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So when the father is calling for the son, pleading with the son, yearning for the son to give him his heart, this, this is what it feels like, this kind of... Emotion, I don't know, commitment, connection, intimacy. This is heart. This is, so what's heart? So that's father. This is a father intimately, warmly, affectionately calling for his son's heart. What, what's heart? Heart is the core of you. The place from which you love. It's your affection, your desire. We are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. It's we are to love the Lord your God with all of our heart. This is one thing that our world really doesn't get. We don't have much heart. Much affection. We're so guarded in our affections. It's true, especially among men. 
We find it utterly strange that David and Jonathan embraced and kissed each other and wept on each other. That would be thought to be very gay today. Can't do that with other men. Same with the thing with Paul and the Ephesians, a spiritual father with his spiritual sons, weeping, embracing. But men, do you, do you feel the need for this? It's heart. That's heart. It's what we need. We're built for it. We're not to be Eddie Haskells. Sorry if that's an older reference. It's what my mom made me watch. Eddie Haskell was all talk, no heart, no sincerity. But one of the surprising realities contra the entire thinking of our world is that you have to control your heart. In Proverbs 2, 2, you're to incline your heart to this and not that. You're to watch over and guard your heart in Proverbs 4, 23. You're not to let your heart attach to certain things in 7, 25. Now, the reality is your heart is not meant to just, your affections, your loves are not meant to just be kept within you. They have to attach to something. It has to go out and grab onto something with full affection. It has to. That's what it's for. And the book of Proverbs is a father saying, son, there are going to be things in this world that are shiny and promise you things, promise you pleasure that your heart's going to want, but that will not deliver the goods. Guard your heart. Don't give your heart to those things. Give me your heart. Again, our Hearts are not morally neutral, but morally corrupt. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, folly there just doesn't mean doing silly things. Folly equals sinful, depraved. We, we don't use the word folly like that anymore. You could, we could rather say depravity is bound up in the heart of the child. Sickness and sin is bound up in the heart of the child. Desire to do what is wrong is bound up in the heart of a child. In Proverbs twelve twenty, it is from deceit in the heart that we devise evil. Constantly in the book of Proverbs, our inclination to be haughty, to be prideful, comes from the heart. Proverbs, or Solomon plainly says in twenty eight twenty six, if you trust in your heart, you're a fool. But our world says, Follow your heart. Your, your heart is good. Whatever your heart wants is itself what is right. Do you understand this? Self-expression is the highest ethic and good of our world. And people who love you are those who affirm your expression of yourself. And what the Bible says is that's ruinous. What you need is a new heart. You need that sinfully inclined heart taken out and replaced with a heart that loves God. And a heart that has been replaced with love for God will first love whom? Will first be given to whom? 
your father and your mother. Son, give me your heart. Give me your affections. My son, give me your heart. So there's this awesome power here in this fatherly, we need father and our heart. We have to set our heart on something. It first belongs to our father and our mother. It's going to take you to Deuteronomy 5 right now, but we don't have time. Let me just connect this. Okay. The two great commandments are what? Right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor yourself. And that's summarizing the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The, the first four commands, the first tablet deal with love God from the heart. Give him your affection. The second six, the second tablet deal with love for neighbor. You know, you can't love your neighbor and murder or hate. You can't love your neighbor and take what's theirs. And what's the command that bridges those two tablets? What's the command that is the transition from love for God for love for humans, neighbor? Honor your father and mother. It's the only command with a promise attached to it. That you could live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So mostly what we say is your first love, your first honor, your first affection that shows affection for God the Father and will lead to love for the humans is love for father and mother, dad and mom. And those who won't. Those who out of bitterness or whatever refuse to give their heart to their father and mother to love them will often find in this world misery and trouble and drama. So you see why it's so important to give your heart to your father and your mother. Your well-ordered, blessed life begins with this most simple relationship. Children giving their hearts to the father and mother. And if you won't, you'll give your heart. But your heart, your loves, your affections will be disordered because the first order is not in place. Everything else is downstream from that relationship. You understand what I'm meaning? If... The mill here in Rhinelander pollutes the Wisconsin River. What happens in Wausau or in Prairie du Chien? The pollution goes right downstream. And if the first affection of a rightly ordered life is polluted, what happens downstream in the rest of your life? So a father coming to his son or daughter and saying, give me your heart. It's calling for you to have a good life, a well-ordered life, where your loves are rightly ordered. But if you won't, if you refuse, 
then all your loves downstream of that will be corrupted. So this isn't about control or manipulation or coercion. This is said from a father who's a good father, from a mother who's a good mother, not to oppress you, not to control you, but so that your life can be well-ordered to the glory of God and the goodness of your future. Now, of course, under God's sovereign ordering of the world, there are those who love and honor their father and mother who die young. And those who are dishonor their father and mother who get filthy rich and live forever, it seems. That's why they're Proverbs. They're not ironclad promises. They're all things being considered. This is how God has ordered the world. So let me just end with some practical considerations. How to do this. Pastor Jeff said it in the children's sermon. We have to admit the reality of this right up front. This is something that we often react against because we've been hurt. The call to give your heart to your father and mother leaves you very vulnerable. It's scary. It's, it's hard. <clears throat> you have to have faith for it. Second, I know one objection or one thought question that is arising in some of your minds is, what if my dad isn't a good man? What if my mom isn't a good woman? Well, we have to talk about that. There's not a blanket answer. Of course, in Mark 10, 18, there's only one good father. Your father and mother are sinful and will do it wrong. One of the problems of childhood is that you know from the earliest of age what a good father and mother should exactly do in every instance and you uh, pretend to tell them often and hold them to such a high standard and then of course when you have your own children (laughs) you want grace and so what do you do with the sins of your father what do you do with the sins of your mother well forgive them fight any temptation towards bitterness. I think the best attitude to have is, depending on what kind of a father and mother, the best attitude is they did the best they could. That humble, forgiving, honoring, my dad did the best he could. Because that's what you're going to want your kids to say of you. And I'll tell you what, If you won't do this, your life will be very difficult. We hardly connect it. We hardly connect gracious honoring of father and mother, particularly at their area of sins and vulnerability, with the disorder in our life as we're angry and bitter and dishonoring towards our parent. We don't connect those two. I can tell you from firsthand experience in counseling that when somebody moves from bitterness towards father and mother to honoring father and mother, 
how greatly it improves their life. Now, there are sins of fathers and mothers, run-of-the-mill, ongoing. My father's been too permissive. He didn't discipline me enough. My father's sometimes too harsh. My mother, like, that just ongoing stuff. And there are some fathers and mothers who are just monsters, who have just been awful. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, you start with God the Father. And you're going to need help. There's nothing else to say about it. You'll need help. You'll need other fathers and mothers to show you what a father and mother should have done. But the one thing you're going to have to do is not be bitter. Bitterness is you thinking by holding on to the anger that you're protecting yourself and harming the person who harmed you and all that you're doing is eating poison, eating the rat poison, thinking, I'll show them. It's just destroying your soul. And you'll need help to do that. And so get it, please. From us, from here, godly church fathers and church mothers. Be honest about it. Don't deny it. So first, you're going to have to be vulnerable. Second, dealing with the sins of your fathers and mothers. Third, fathers and mothers to you. The goal of our fathering and mothering is to gain the hearts of our children. It's not to coerce their lives It's not to manipulate. It is to live with our children in such a way as to make it somewhat easy for them to give us their heart. So practically, of course, love. Love sincerely. Love covers over a multitude of sins. You're going to sin against your children. Sin isn't the problem in a parent-child relationship. Lack of love is. So love them. Second, you see this tone that David takes in 23, 26? My son, give me your heart. This kind of intimate, affectionate pleading. There are times when you just have to demand something of your children, correct? You have to say, don't do that. Do that. That's a right parental tone. But this sense of intimacy and affection ought to be the main reality in your relationship with your child. This more pleading, caring, getting at the heart, not just demanding. And that's going to need a lot of relational time. If you want your child to give his or her heart to you, doesn't it begin with you giving your heart to him or her? Your affection? Your attention, your listening, not talking, your cuddling, your wrestling, your tickling, your words of how proud you are with specificity, how beautiful she is. 
Like a child should feel growing up in your household what God the Son felt of God his Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. That should be the atmosphere of the intimacy of your home with your children. And men, this is often particularly hard for us. We have to give our hearts. Now, this is also true in our relationships in the church. This is true of male friendships. You have to give your heart. This is true of father-son, mother-daughter relationships spiritually in the church. You have to give your heart. You have to be intimate. You have to be vulnerable. Let your children know your sins, your fears. Be vulnerable with them. Pray for this. That would be another practical. Pray for this intimacy that you need with your children. Be of decent character. It's hard to give your heart to somebody who is not of good character. Seek forgiveness. I've heard from some of you that you've never heard your father and mother ever say, I was wrong, please forgive me. They never admit they're wrong. Admit you're wrong when you're wrong. Have, if you're going to gain the heart of your child, you have to be a man or a woman, a father or mother who loves God and gives him or herself to the church. I've seen this over and over again. Children who love their parents, honor their parents, often have parents who are deeply involved in the church and really love God. It's not a show here. It's not worship with God who lives the hearts far from him. Give yourself. Work hard. Now, what do you do if you're here and your son or daughter is 13 or 18 or 28 and you're like, I just haven't done this well? Well, it's not too late. Don't let yourself off the hook thinking, I've messed this up too much. It's too late. That's just an excuse. Isn't the grace of God that which says it's never too late? Doesn't the grace of God redeem the years that locusts have eaten? Begin now. Tell your child how you messed up. But don't make it all talk. Get help from others. And let me turn to the children with a few practicals. Young men and young women... And, and, and this is kind of the transition. So parents included here. It is right that at a certain age, whatever that is, your sons and daughters need to differentiate from you. They, they have to become their own person. This is often the time when relational disharmony amps up. Because mom and dad are surprised that you aren't what you were a week ago suddenly. <laughs> that now you're questioning. A child starts to question. Wants to make up his or own mind. Often just argues with things that you know are completely unreasonable. So children, you have to become adults. So on your side of it, kids, that means you've got to take responsibility for your life. If you want to have your mom or dad treat you like an adult, well, then act like one. Don't make dumb decisions and then ask mom and dad to clean up after you. I mean, clean up after yourself. If you use a bathroom, clean it. That's what adults do. 
If you take your socks off after work, don't leave them laying on the floor or, for goodness sakes, on a table. I am opening the door to my home for you to see. I'm not naming the sun. Right? I'm serious. Like, kids, there is this disconnect in your brain often to I want freedom, but I'm acting as if I don't want freedom. Those two have to begin to align in your life. You don't get to live in your parents' home and work a job and buy things that your parents can't afford because you're staying in their room and eating their food and so have all of this disposable income. Right? That shows immaturity. But if you want to be treated maturely, then act maturely. Now, on a parent's side, you have to move from being managers of your child life to advisors. You move from telling them what to do to waiting to be asked by them what they should do. And then you don't hound them afterwards. They have to make mistakes. And they have to suffer the consequences for their mistakes. You don't have to clean up after them. So children, at this age of differentiating, the one thing that you'll want to do is give your heart to your mom or dad. That's the age of the son that Solomon's here talking to. I don't know what age, 13, 15, 18. Give your heart to your dad and mom. Give your heart to them. Now, kids, a couple other things for you. The choices you'll make need to be guided, firstly, by a love for God, secondly, by a love for your dad or mom. Look at in this verse, your parents' joy and sorrow is largely dependent on the choices you'll make. It's just the way God has made this world to work. Parents, is this true? It's absolutely true. Do not give me the super spiritual hogwash that you just need to love Jesus and what other people do should never affect your emotions. It just is not godly to think that. The choices your children make will go a long way in determining your joy or your sorrow as a father and a mother. Children, give your heart to your father and mother. Choose wisely. How? Now give them your affection. Go to them for advice. Love their God. Love the God that your father and mother love. Take your relationship with the Lord seriously. The apostle John says, there's nothing greater than I want than my children to be walking in the truth. There's nothing that your mom or dad wants. Now, now you can't fake this. You have to own it yourself. But love the God that your father loves. Love the God that your mother loves. Love the word of God that your father and mother love. Love the church that your father and mother love and serve it. It might not be the exact same church, but you know what I mean. Take care how you speak to and speak about your father and mother. The people who will listen to you complain and dishonor your father and mother are not friends. Now, they may listen, and then they may say, 
I love you. You shouldn't be dishonoring your mom and dad. But if you are amongst a friend group and what you guys do is rag on your parents mutually, that's not a friendship. Because they would know that the most important reality in your life is your relationship to your parents and that goodness for your life means they'll help you love and honor your father and mother. And lastly, just take responsibility for it. So I said a lot. Ultimately, love God. Give yourself to the church. Ask God for a heart that loves and honors dad and mom. Let's pray. Father, help us. It's a long sermon with heavy stuff, fundamental realities that are not easy, they're not simple, they're very complex. And yet, Father, give us the faith to respond to the wisdom of this, to see the goodness of it. For those who have relationships with mom and dad, son or daughter, that are just messed up, would you heal that, those breaches? Would whatever pride needs to be laid down, whatever is between, would you heal those up for your glory, for the good and joy of the parents, and for the health and future and well-being of the son or daughter? Please, God, have mercy there. For those that are going well or maybe in that transition it's being tested, give wisdom, please. May the church be a help. And may those who are young hear this and give themselves the vulnerability of giving their affection, their hearts to their mom or dad. And so, Father, we ask what you've said in Malachi, that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so, Father, please have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.